various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk. Come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform Radio. Thank you. 
Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman, coming to you from my bedroom today. Uh, recording earlier, a day early. It is Thursday, June 23rd. Uh, tomorrow is Transmarch, so that's where I will be in the afternoon while this is playing on Mutiny Radio. I encourage folks to come out. There'll be a lot of great performers and speakers there, and that'll be at Dolores Park, uh, June 24th. So, I'll get into some news, be playing some music as well, and wishing everyone a happy Pride. Of course, every day should be Pride. Every day, everyone should feel comfortable being out and about, walking around, and let's work to make it so that is a reality. Starting off, uh, there are common themes on this show, and a lot of it is people in positions of authority messing up. I think we can all say that together, kind of, we go into that all the time. And I think that's probably the most disruptive, disgusting thing in the world are folks who either have been elected or have been uh, to have taken power or feel like they're entitled to it. And then in positions where they could be helping people instead end up causing harm. And that's super problematic. And problematic doesn't even begin to really characterize everything that happens. So I almost got into a, a Facebook fight. It wasn't a fight. It almost was. I try I'm very much... I dislike Facebook and social media, and there's that part of me that wants to resist entirely and totally go offline and just live my life and see people face to face. And then there's the part of me that recognizes that's how people connect, it's how people advertise for shows, and as a performer, it's a very great marketing tool. And also just how one uh, finds out about what's happening in the world. So a friend of mine had posted that Mark Cuban, who's like the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, the basketball team, uh, he decided to donate $1 million, $1 million to uh, the Dallas police force. And I was like, fuck that. I didn't say it like that. It was much more polite, but it was more like, and this was uh, in response to Orlando wanting to help the community. And there have been a lot of homophobic attacks in Dallas, and they haven't been solved at all. So the cops haven't really helped in the situation. And my conspiracy theory, which may be accurate, and of course I very much... Would rather I'd rather be proven wrong and have things be better than be right and be like, oh yeah, things are really messed up. I would assume that perhaps some of these cops are the ones responsible for the homophobic attacks. I would love to be proven wrong. Prove me wrong, please. However, I think, yeah, the gift is very generous. However, putting more money towards folks to m protect people like in a military sense, I don't think that's really going to help anything. And if anything, it might cause more problems, especially since the police and the LGBT community don't really have a great history. If you look back to Stonewall and Compton's Cafeteria and even the White Knight Riots, like so many other situations, uh, the cops were the ones who were attacking the community. So why would you want to give them more money? Why not just give it directly to the community for folks who might need counseling, for like mental health services, for medical services, uh, find, find housing, to help with job training, um, education. There are so many ways that this money could go ahead to actually help the community directly. And I think giving it to the police, who already, they already make like six figures uh, it's not really, it's like putting a band-aid on the problem and a band-aid which might cause more like infections if we're going to go on the metaphorical uh, sense uh, description there. And so then this article popped up which kind of reiterates the point and I don't know anything personally about the Dallas Police Department. I have been to Dallas once. I don't remember it that well. I was there during Pride actually. Was I? There was something happening that was somewhat gay. I was there in the fall? Anyway, my point is, I don't have any personal relationship with the, with the Dallas Police Department. The San Francisco Police Department I've had a couple issues with personally, and many of my friends have, and then many folks I haven't known. So I'm more aware of what's happening with the SFPD. 
Oh, and the Oakland Police Department, which we will get into at, at some point, too. Um, anyway, so considering that there are known uh, folks who are part of the SFPD who have, been, who have been caught sending racist, homophobic, sexist texts, I would imagine that the same would be true for the Dallas Police Department. And again, I don't know for sure, just, just a conjecture, I would imagine that there is some white supremacy and some homophobia and some misogyny among the ranks of that police department. I don't know for certain. This is just a guess. I would love to be proven wrong, and I don't think that's going to happen. So if they're that bad here in San Francisco, I would imagine the same would be true for Dallas. So this goes into our first article, which comes from The Guardian. <laughs> Good source of news. Uh, LGBT people of color alienated by San Francisco Pride's plan for more police. Some members of LGBT community who faced harassment and disparate treatment from police say increased security doesn't mean they feel more safe. San Francisco is ramping up security at its annual Pride festivities this weekend in the wake of the deadly attack on queer people of color in Orlando, a move that is alienating some members of the community that this year's racial and economic justice-themed event is meant to celebrate. There will be a significant police presence, officials said, and for the first time in San Francisco Pride's 46-year history, attendees will be required to go through security screenings to enter the festival area at the Civic Center. But for some members of the city's LGBT community who have historically faced harassment and disparate treatment from police, increased security does not translate into an increased sense of safety. You're turning out an armed force that has a record of racist violence against people of color in a March-themed Black Lives Matter. If folks can't see the irony of that, I don't know what to tell you, said Malkia Cyril, a member of Black Lives Matter, the organizational grand marshal for this year's parade. A 2015 study of the LGBTQ residents of San Francisco found that just 50% of LGBTQ people of color and 40% of transgender people of color believe that police officers would help them if needed. Sam Singer, spokesman for SF Pride, the not-for-profit organization that stages the annual event, said the organization had lengthy discussions with law enforcement and mutually came to the recommendation that in light of the terrorist attack in Orlando, this level of security was necessary. Attendees at the Pride Festival, a two-day event of music, dance, drag, and dykes on bikes, will be screened with walk-through metal detectors or handheld wands and will be subject to additional searches on their person or possessions, according to a police statement. The department plans to increase staffing and says there will be a significant police presence, both of uniformed and undercover officers. Boo. Firearms, weapons, alcohol, drugs, portable speakers, and other potentially hazardous items will be banned. But Singer says fetishes will still be welcome. I believe whips and chains will always be allowed at Pride, he said, just not weapons you can harm another person with. The theme for this year's Pride celebration is for racial and economic justice, and many of the weekend's honorees represent historically marginalized parts of the LGBT community. In addition to Black Lives Matter, the event will honor Janetta Johnson, the executive director of Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project, TGIJP, and the St. James Infirmary, a sex worker advocacy organization. 
Now, those organizations are grappling with the news of the increased law enforcement presence. It doesn't make me feel safe, said Johnson, a formerly incarcerated black transgender woman. I'm more afraid of police than terrorists. Increased police presence at Pride means greater threat of violence, harassment, and profiling for much of our community, said Stephanie Ashley, executive director of St. James Infirmary. The new security protocols at SF Pride will not create more safety for our community. They will create more exclusion. San Francisco's LGBT community is not alone in navigating the contradictions of policing and safety in the wake of the Orlando attack. In New York City, the heavy police presence at a vigil for the Orlando victims at the Stonewall Inn, where police abuse of LGBT patrons triggered the 1969 Stonewall riots, drew hostility from some mourners. Breakout, an LGBTQ youth group in New Orleans, withdrew from the New Orleans Pride Parade on Sunday despite having been selected as an organizational grand marshal. In a statement, Breakout said the increased law enforcement made its members feel unsafe and called for the LGBT community to chart a course forward that doesn't rely on state systems, but rather community to keep us safe, adding, while we were honored to be named one of the grand marshals in pride, our priority is to our vision of liberation where we walk down the street without fear. Hashtag police out of pride. For the moment, Black Lives Matter Bay Area is still planning to participate in San Francisco Pride, but Cyril says the group reserves the right to pull out. The 49 lives in Orlando were not lost because of lack of police presence. They were lost because we live in a country and world that has perpetuated racist, homophobic hate as a matter of policy, she said. Whether at SF Pride or any other moment to protect queer lives, cities should be doing everything they can to attack homophobia, not to turn their policing resources against the queer community, she added. So again, you can find that article um, on The Guardian, and the title of it is LGBT People of Color Alienated by San Francisco Pride's Plan for More Police, and was written by Julia Carey Wong. So I'm going to play a few clips uh, that have been shared uh, that I think would be great to share with the radio listeners. And I have to give a shout out to my friend Elon, who who shared this with us. And this uh, comes from the Gay Men of African Descent, uh, Inc. And I'll uh, be playing this, and I'll be back with some more news in a bit. To be gay and black in New York City in the 70s... Um, it was fun. I, I, I'm. Just, it was fun. It was fun. If you, it's kind of like how they say nowadays, know your, know your lane, stay in your lane. If you knew your lane and you knew where to stay in, it was a lot of fun. Um, Greenwich Village was not what it is today. It was not the family-friendly place. It was a gay ghetto, and you were very welcome there. It was one of the few places that I knew that once I got below 14th Street, I felt safe. I honestly felt safe down there. Because once I got down there, the chances of running into anybody from my neighborhood was very low. And if I did run into them and they were from my neighborhood, they were there for the same reason I was there. So there's a sense of safety there in the 70s and the 80s, definitely. With me being 49, I think that New York was the epicenter of black gay culture. You had people from the Caribbean, people from Africa, people from Latin America. You had all these black men 
from everywhere, and there were different levels of being out. Now, there was there were gay clubs in Cleveland and all of that, and it was cute for what it was, but in New York, there was more freedom. There was more visibility. There was more openness. There was more strength in numbers. There were more clubs. There was the house music. There was this presence of the African diaspora. It wasn't just African Americans. It was any black person from anywhere in the world. I met this guy and his girlfriend at the time. He said, um, why don't you come to New York? There's this club here I think you like. I used to tell him, I used to party all the time when I was a little kid. And he said, and he said the name of the club is Paradise Garage. He says, but the thing with this, I need you to go because they only allow one girl for every two guys. So I need a, a second guy to come in. So I told the guy, I said, sure. And when I went there, I found heaven. It was like my home. It was the place. I mean, I saw all rainbows of people there, color ages. And I was in heaven there. And so I was like, okay, I was partying there. And then I, at the same time, I was going to school back in Connecticut. So I heard of NYU. So I said, well, why don't I just come to NYU? And I was commuting back and forth from in, uh, Connecticut to NYU. So one day I was driving home and I fell asleep at the wheel and almost hit a New York State trooper. So at that point I said, Michael, you need to move here. So on a whim and on an impulse, I just packed everything up and moved here. Mm. It was very hot, sexually. Um, sex was free. And Everybody was doing it. And there were places you could go to do that. You know, kind of places? Uh, bathrooms, uh, parks, um, by the water. Um, it was much freer than it is now. I think that for me, the 70s was the sex. Um, well, Keller's Bar was open back then, and um, that was facing the West Side Highway. But really, the place for us was the West Side Highway and the piers. Um, I, I learned how to vote there, I learned how to read there, I learned how to be a young gay black man there. Um, so many important people in my life were no longer here or there. Um, when they talk about the house scene, you know, I was introduced to the ball scene down there. I was introduced to the whole concept of what it is, what, what fierce meant. And, um, yeah, it, it was home. You know, I knew that when I left school, I could get on the train, I could get on the D train or the A train, get off at West 4th Street, and I was okay. Brooklyn at that time was heavily Caribbean. My roommate was Haitian. Um, I would go to gay parties comprised of people from Grenada, Panama, um, Haiti, Jamaica, all over. There was a sense of pride, but there was a gay Caribbean bar that had opened and it closed. It didn't last that long because the Caribbean guys were across the street standing by Tima and we got to kill them. So that bar didn't last. Um, but there was this other bar called the Starlight in Brooklyn. And that bar carried on. And that was where a lot of black people went to party, to listen to house music. Um, around that time, there was also the Octagon, which I remember, which was three floors, 
One floor played um, house, one floor played reggae, and one floor, I think, played rap. It was like this big-ass place where everyone partied. Everything was on the down low. Mm. Um, at that time, I was dealing with both men and women. I was a father. Um, most of the men I dealt with were bisexual, like myself. Um, and for a lot of times, we were just happy to be able to be with someone. Um, there was a lot of problems with the police in a lot of cases. Um, but you had to find some place to really be. And that was a clip uh, talking about some LGBT history, which I think is super important given the fact that uh, a lot of our history isn't taught to us. Jenny came over and told me about Fred, such a hairy behemoth, she said. Dumb as a box of hammers, but he's such a handsome guy. And I opened up and I told about Larry and yesterday how he asked me to marry and I'm not giving him an answer yet. Welcome back. That was Jill Sobule 
with I kissed a girl and I feel sometimes uh, not to be dismissive of the next generation but when Katy Perry had her song uh, which came out talking about kissing girls which was just really dismissive and gross and kind of borderline homophobic uh, I was like this does not at all compare to Jill Sabule's version which was just right on so I wanted to play that in celebration of pride and it's always pride on, on this show and I always like to share news from the LGBT community. So I was considering making this episode strictly about LGBTQ issues, although I, f- I feel that I do that on a pretty constant basis. So I wanted to address some other issues that are happening. And also, if there's time at the end, I was going to play some short films that are online. Also, huge, huge shout out to this film, Major. It's an incredible documentary. I highly recommend folks check it out. It's about Miss Major, who has been in the community for uh, quite a few decades and has been instrumental in helping uh, many trans women of color and has done a lot with uh, getting folks out of prison and just dealing with uh, prison reform and uh, career training and just helping people and it was a really awesome documentary and I cannot recommend it enough so again it's called Major really really great film and I uh, wanted to put the word out there for for that so uh, it's going to be playing a little bit I will be most likely playing some clips there's a, a segment about Sylvia Rivera that I was interested in playing as well as Marsha P. Johnson so I wanted to give them some airtime a little bit later uh, but first I'm going to get to a couple more stories uh, that affects all of us. All these things affect all of us, really, because when one person's oppressed, we all are. Hello. So it was interesting to see the Democrats. Uh, they did a they did a sit-in. They did something else. They did the filibuster earlier this week, and then uh, they decided to do a sit-in uh, led by John Lewis, which is super awesome. And there are folks who are saying, okay, this is a great action. However, um, couldn't they have done this when uh, food stamps were being cut? Couldn't they have done this? Ooh, uh, <laughs> done this when you know, like housing uh, propositions were being blocked and other other issues that really affect people. When the Republicans were kind of just taking away money from social services, um, couldn't they have done this when there's the the drone? Like, there's so many issues that have happened where they've kind of either remained silent or they haven't spoken up. So there was that kind of like, well, where was this action? A long time ago why weren't they doing this until now and it's too little too late in a way although it is exciting to see them and there's also been critiques in that what they are i'm personally of the opinion if i could have my ideal world people ask me what's your ideal world like and it's something where it's kind of not quite the opposite of what we have right now but it's everyone feels safe walking down the street there's no military there's no jails um, people don't have to work at jobs they despise. There's no debt. The air and the water is not polluted. Uh, food is free. Everyone is compensated for their time and their energy and their work that they put into everything. Everyone is housed. Everyone is fed. Everyone has access to health care. I don't think that's too much to ask for, but it's kind of far from where we are right now. And, oh, so to get rid of the whole gun thing, like, part of me is, like, from the the movie... Uh, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Um, the movie from the 50s when the aliens come down and they get rid of all the weapons. The day the Earth stood still. Yes. An allegory for communism and how like people are afraid of something they don't know. The aliens come down and like, you guys are really... Uh, you're using too many weapons. This is ridiculous. This is in the 50s, too. And the, our, the U.S. and the Army, they don't know how to respond to this. They're like, oh my god, aliens, we're scared. And so then they get the armies out with all their guns and then the aliens make all of the guns disappear. Spoiler alert, 
Well, this is like kind of not all the way through the movie, so it's not huge, hugely of a spoiler alert. Um, and then they also like make sure like they tur- don't turn off all the electricity, except for in hospitals. You know, they're like making sure everyone's okay. They're very peaceful aliens, and um, you know, people are like, some people are like on board, and some people are like really freaking out because it's like the unknown, and the unknown is scary. And so my ideal is like just getting rid of the weapons altogether. Like if there's no weapons, and I, I get that people can use other things as weapons and all that, but if we didn't have any guns, like if, imagine to wake up and there are no guns and no bombs, like, wow, what kind of world would that be? And that's very idealist. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going with this. So that would be like my ideal. So the, of course the Democrats are trying to make it so it's harder for some people to get guns. And like, I guess I like the idea Theoretically, the idea is that it should be more difficult for folks to access weapons, especially assault. Like no one, I think like no one should have them at all. And the thing is, like if we're gonna like stop civilians from having assault rifles and weapons, we need to stop the police and the military from having them as well. Stop everyone from having them. Make them disappear. So, one issue that's happening is this watch list, um, where it's like, well, if you're on the watch list, you can't get a gun. However, there is some, and I'll get into this with this article. The idea that this watch list isn't necessarily going to be accurate or fair or just, and that's a huge problem. So this comes from The Intercept, and this was written by Zaid Jelani, and the title is Dramatic House Sit-In on Guns is Undercut by Focus on Secret Racist Watch List. And this uh, came out on June 22nd. Congressional Democrats took the unprecedented step of conducting an actual sit-in on the floor of the House of Representatives on Wednesday, demanding that Republican leaders allow votes on gun control legislation. But this unusually bold and moving tactic was undercut by the fact that its chief goal is a political gimmick that would do little to stop gun violence while expanding the use of a deeply flawed anti-terror watch list. While sit-in participants are also advocating for expanded background checks and an assault weapons ban, their primary call to action is for a vote on a measure that would ban gun sales to people listed on a federal government watch list, a move clearly designed more for its political potency than for its effectiveness. And the government's consolidated terrorist watch list is notoriously unreliable. It has ensnared countless innocent Americans, including disabled war veterans and members of Congress. Nearly half the people on these watch lists were designated as having no recognized terrorist group affiliation, according to documents obtained by The Intercept in 2014. Indeed, many of those involved in today's sit-in have themselves recognized these problems in the past. In a 2014 letter addressed to the Department of Homeland Security, lawmakers, including Representative John Lewis, Democrat from Georgia, the civil rights hero leading today's sit-in, complained that the current process for appealing designation on the federal no-fly lists provides no effective means of redress for unfair or incorrect designations. Some members exaggerated the measure's potential impact. If the laws had been in place that the Senate tried to pass in this horrific tragedy of Orlando, there would not be 49 dead. If the laws had been in place, no fly, no buy, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat Texas, said. Let's do this for the victims of the Pulse Night Club in Orlando, intoned Representative Suzanne Bonamici, Democrat from Oregon. But even though Orlando shooter Omar Mateen was reportedly once on the terrorist watch list maintained by the FBI, he was removed from the list before the tragic mass shooting. 
House Democrats can force a bill to come up for a vote on the floor if they are able to get 218 signatures from members on what is called a discharge petition. A discharge petition for New York Republican Representative Peter King's version of legislation to bar Americans on the terrorist watch list from purchasing firearms currently has 181 signatures. Ironically, King is notorious for targeting Muslims, having held hearings in 2011 accusing them of not properly cooperating with law enforcement to identify terrorists. Democrats have no similar discharge petition on other gun legislation, such as Rhode Island Democratic Representative David Cicilline's bill to ban assault weapons. Update, 9.20 p.m. Eastern Time. Progressive Change Campaign Committee co-founder Adam Green tweeted that his organization has been lobbying for a discharge petition for an assault weapons ban for a week. Zero takers. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi is the problem. Very frustrating. Whew. So again, thank you to the inter- Intercept for... Um, for highlighting that and recognizing that it's all it's pretty complex what's happening right now so i'm going to play some more music and then be back with one more news story and then uh i think i'll use the rest of the time uh to play some queer history so here's a song from the band panza division called deep water <laughs> we'd like to be nice to some of you. So we came up with the Laugh-In Award for Outstanding Achievement, and here it is. This is the Flying Fickle Finger of Fate Award, which will be given each week to that person or group who have proven they truly deserve to receive the Flying Fickle Finger of Fate Award. (laughs) 
Our first winner is... May I have the envelope, please? Thank you. And the winner is... The United States Congress, established 1781 as a lobby for the American people for ignoring the wishes of 200 million Americans and delaying passage of a gun control law, we hereby present Congress with a first flying fickle finger of fate. You ought to be more careful with that thing. I didn't know it was loaded. That's the most beautiful thing I ever heard. All right. So that was from Laughing, and that's this was back in uh, back in the '60s. Let's see if we can get the actual date on here. Uh, September 1968. So these things have been going on for quite a long time. So coming up next, didn't have a chance to really report fully on this last week, uh, and this comes from Mexico. 200,000 doctors to join teachers in Mexico national strike. And you can find this at telesurtv.net. And this came out June 21st. Doctors' leaders have condemned the killing of at least eight people during a teacher's protest last Sunday in the state of Osaka. As protests led by the militant CNTE Teachers Union in Mexico continue, the country's doctors are set to join in the job action, calling for a national strike on June 22nd to protest a neoliberal reform to the health system imposed by President Enrique Peña Nieto. The group hashtag YoSoyMedico17, which is comprised of doctors, pediatricians, surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurses, has been joined by more than 200,000 physicians from 32 states in opposing the so-called universal health system reform by Peña Nieto. The medical professionals say the measure is a disguised way of privatizing health in Mexico, and said doctors were not consulted on the reform, according to Animal Politico. The doctors' protest will join the ongoing national general strike by teachers. Doctors also condemned the killing of at least eight people during a teachers' protest last Sunday in the state of Osaka and denounced what they call intimidation and repression by authorities, as well as organized crime. According to doctors, as violence has increased in Mexico, they have suffered the consequences of crimes like kidnappings, enforced disappearances, and killings that have gone unpunished by authorities. President Peña Nieto has introduced a number of radical measures, including 11 neoliberal structural reforms in education, health, and the energy sector during his first 20 months. Tens of thousands of teachers have been protesting since May, demanding a meeting with Peña Pena uh, Nieto and his ministers to discuss the education reform. However, Pena Nieto uh, and his education minister, Ariello Nuno, have refused to talk with the union leaders. Oh, so that's what's happening. One thing that's happening in Mexico, and felt it's important to report on that. Uh, there's another story. Uh, I'll just read the headline, and folks can check it out uh, in full if they'd like. And this comes from the Washington Post. Study finds police officers arrested 1,100 times per year, or three per day nationwide. Uh, and there's a quote, Police crimes are not uncommon, Stinson concluded. Our data directly contradicts some of the prevailing assumptions and the proposition that only a small group of rotten apples perpetrate 
the the vast majority perpetuate perpetrate <laughs> okay our data directly contradicts some of the prevailing assumptions and the proposition that only a small group of rotten apples perpet perpetrate the vast majority of police crime. So again, you can find that at the Washington Post, and it was also shared by colorofchange.org. So the other story I'm going to get to today um, has to do with, oh, there's a positive story, which, okay, um, I'll get to that now since it's up here from Democracy Now! After decades of protest, last California nuclear plant to close and be replaced by renewable energy. So that's pretty awesome, and you can find that at Democracy Now! Um, also, San Francisco voters may ban homeless encampments, and this is from the San Francisco Examiner. Mark Farrell, who's in the Board of Supervisors, wants to ban homeless encampments, which is pretty messed up, and to not able not to be able to provide places for people to go is hugely problematic. So the next story I'm going to get to is from Mother Jones, and this is about private prisons. I personally am a prison abolitionist. I think they should all be gone. And uh, the more I hear, the more I am sure of this altogether. And so this is a pretty long article. Oh, gosh. I'm going to do my best to read as much as possible. And then I'll finish up the show with some clips from uh, stories from Marsha B. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. So this comes from MotherJones.com. And this is written by Shane Bauer. Uh, my four months as a private prison guard. Chapter one. Inmates run this bitch. Have you ever had a riot? I ask a recruiter from a prison run by the Corrections Corporation of America, CCA. The last riot we had was two years ago, he says over the phone. Yeah, but that was with the Puerto Ricans, says a woman's voice cutting in. We got rid of them. When can you start, the man asks. I tell him I need to think it over. I take a breath. Am I really going to become a prison guard? Now that it might actually happen, it feels scary and a bit extreme. I started applying for jobs in private prisons because I wanted to see the inner workings of an industry that holds 131,000 of the nation's 1.6 million prisoners. As a journalist, it's nearly impossible to get an unconstrained look inside our penal system. When prisons do let reporters in, it's usually for carefully managed tours and monitored interviews with inmates. Private prisons are especially secretive. Their records often aren't subject to public access laws. CCA has fought to defeat legislation that would make private prisons subject to the same disclosure rules as their public counterparts. And even if I could get uncensored information from private prison inmates, how would I verify their claims? I keep coming back to this question. Is there any other way to see what really happens inside a private prison? CCA certainly seemed eager to give me a chance to join its team. Within two weeks of filling out its online application, using my real name and personal information, several CCA prisons contacted me, some multiple times. They weren't interested in the details of my resume. They didn't ask about my job history, my current employment with the Foundation for National Progress, the publisher of Mother Jones, or why someone who writes about criminal justice in California would want to move across the country to work in a prison. They didn't even ask about the time I was arrested for shoplifting when I was 19. When I, when I call Wynn Correctional Center in, Lin, in Winfield, Louisiana, the HR lady who answers is chipper and has a smoky southern voice. I should tell you up front that the job only pays $9 an hour, but the prison is in the middle of a national forest. Do you like to hunt and fish? I like fishing. Then there is plenty of fishing, and people around here like to hunt squirrels. Do you ever squirrel hunt? No. Well, I think you'll like Louisiana. 
I know it's not a lot of money, but they say you can go from a CEO to a warden in just seven years. The CEO of the company started out as a CEO, a corrections officer. Ultimately, I choose Wynn. Not only does Louisiana have the highest incarceration rate in the world, more than 800 prisoners per 100,000 residents, but Wynn is the oldest privately operated medium security prison in the country. I phone HR and tell her I'll take the job. Well, poop can stick, she says. I pass the background check within 40, within 24 hours. I didn't think it was going to happen. It was just kind of a whim. I put in an application with the Corrections Corporation of America for prison guard jobs. A week later, I start getting calls. I was surprised how quickly it happened. I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this. Um, I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know what my job will entail. prison companies in general are kind of notoriously secretive. Corrections Corporation of America began around 1983. CCA, the GEO Group, and MTC operate more than 130 facilities nationwide. Combined revenues of these two companies reached $3.3 billion in 2014. It's very hard for journalists to get information about these prisons. Are you aware that they are they were lobbyists for Corrections Corporation of America? Officials wouldn't say what started the riot. Are they as safe? Are they under the same standards? A riot broke out today. Guards looked on but didn't do anything. Four inmates are dead. Eight inmates hospitalized. Forty-six prisoners ended up needing medical attention. We are America's leader in partnership corrections. We are CCA. The first time that I went in there, I mean, I was very nervous. I almost had a heart attack like five times, yeah. It's gonna be hard to adjust to. I just wanted to get out like as soon as I could. And I was in there for like a half hour. Soon I'm gonna be in there for eight hours a day and then soon after that I'm gonna be in there for 12 hours a day. Oh God, love you too. Okay, bye. This part of America in particular is um, very poor. Employers in the area are the lumber mill, Walmart, and CCA. No, it's really not too many jobs. You actually have to go out of town to find a job. Logging woods or lumber mill. Either you have a job or you selling dope, and that's it. So people are willing to take a very dangerous job for nine or ten dollars an hour. 
today was my first day on the job. I feel like I just entered this huge world. I was exposed to a couple different chemical agents. As part of the graduation, uh, in true corporate style, I got a swag bag, a little card. Remember, failure is not an option. Thank you. A keychain that is a little pair of handcuffs. Some CCA shades, which I think, when combined with my CCA hat, gives me a pretty mean look. What do you think? Hey, uh, hold on a minute. Okay, so that was a video that was included in part of the Mother Jones clip about private prisons, and we'll be looking into that in episodes in the future. So I was going to get started by playing a clip from a short piece that's about Sylvia Rivera, uh, who is one of the founders of the trans movement, and this was uploaded by uh, Randolph Wicker. You can find it on YouTube. So enjoy. Stories of my life. Because I know that my children... In later years, my transgender community will understand. We have to stand up and speak for ourselves. We have to fight for ourselves. We saved their lives. We were the frontliners of the so-called 1969 rebellion of the Stonewall. I don't know how long I'm going to be around, but I wanted to be told the way I feel. Sylvia and I talked about it when she was in the hospital, and really neither one of us could come up with why we, of all people, stayed friends for 33 years. I've always said we were the oddest of odd couples, but I was in my 40s at that time. Sylvia was 19. Um, Sylvia was basically a Puerto Rican street drag queen. We didn't have transgendered people in those days. I was uh, a wasp who had uh, come out of the establishment. Uh, Stonewall was peculiar. It, it meant many things to many people. Here was a riot, and here, uh, for the first time, well, first time any of us were seeing uh, gays fight back. I think one of the things that impressed Sylvia most was the, um, the line of street kids doing the, the rockhead, we are the Stonewall girls, because I mean, this was in total defiance. This was getting out and saying to the world, to the police, to everybody, I'm a little faggot, and it was, we are the Stonewall girls, we wear our hair in curls, we don't wear underwear, we show our pubic hair. It certainly uh, was the turning point in, in the life of Sylvia Rivera. The one aspect of Sylvia's activism going all the way back to 1970 in Star House was the specific issue of dealing with the homeless transgender population. Star House came out of the organization Star, which stood for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and it was the 
brainstorm of Sylvia, Marsha, Pete Johnson, and Bubbles Rose Lee. Marsha and Sylvia got a hold of this building and they were using it. It's sort of the model for Transy House here, in fact, as a uh, kind of collective place for the uh, trans girls that were out living on the street, you know, homeless. Marsha and Sylvia mothered them. I mean, they mothered everybody. So I considered Sylvia to be my mother. Everybody in this house called her Ma. I mean, she was... Uh, well, that's what she was. Sylvia left the movement uh, after the first three, three or four years because in this very park, she had been refused the right to speak. And it was right here with the rally after one of the, um, the pride marches. It was like the fourth anniversary gay march when I was beat up on stage. Y'all better quiet down. Sylvia did grab the mic and speak, and she roared. Revolution now! Give me a key! Give me an A! Give me a Y! Give me a P! Give me an O! Give me a W! Give me an A! Give me an O! never seen anyone so so lost I mean Sylvia's world had suddenly just collapsed and Sylvia left the movement for 20 years I've known Sylvia informally you might say since 1969-1970 the Gay Activist Alliance we were arch enemies for the first 22 years of the 32 years we knew one another and that is story which I think is so remarkable that person that I used to consider a very arch enemy or moral political enemy someone I had no use for whatsoever ended up becoming one of my best friends in life and literally came in here and ran my business and became one of the most special wonderful incredible people I ever knew how many people have one of their worst enemies or oldest enemy become one of their best friends and saviors have you ever spent a winter in these, in, you know, like out of doors in an I spent, environment like this? I spent winters with um, Marsha and some of the other drag queens many years ago before Star House. And drawing, you know, drawing the beginning of Star House out in the street. But it wasn't like this. This uh -huh. is like a complete new atmosphere for me. They didn't have homeless encampments in those days. We didn't. Did we, we slept in hallways. Or either Marsh or I had a hotel room where we snuck everybody in. You know. The pier was actually established a few years before I got here. I came down to be nosy and I moved in and took over basically as the big mother that I am. Over here, this was part of my house. This is my little segment of the house, because Vinnie and Tom live on that side. You can mm -hmm. go in and film. It's, you know, very... This is my closet where I keep my clothes, yeah. Any gowns? Yeah, all the gowns, you know, I don't need more. 
I was comfortable for a lot of years. You know, like I said, we owned a house. My lover and I did own a house. And actually what happened, you know, it's been like three years is when, Ma, when, when I got that telegram, the marshal was dead. I mean, I lost a lot of my incentive to do anything. When she died, part of me went with her because one of our packs was that we would always cross River Jordan together. And to me, this is the River Jordan, the Hudson River. This is not my first time that I've hit bottom as far as, you know, because of my drinking and whatnot. But, but what's given me a lot of incentive right now is like being back in the village instead of being in Westchester and keeping myself confined from what my life has always been is to fight for something. Because most of the kids here were alcoholics and people with AIDS. And that's one of the reasons that I like I stayed on for as long as I did until we got thrown out because there were people here that really needed help and the community was not here to help them. But it it hurts to see that people are not being helped. I may spend the winter out here for the simple fact that if I can't see them off the street. Why should I go get shelter for myself? Because right now, I have to prove a point as a Stonewall veteran. I find myself back in this situation, but as I look at the river a lot of times, and Marsha gives me a lot of strength, is that I gotta keep fighting for somebody. Marsha was a fighter. We were both fighters. I actually feel her spirit telling me, you gotta keep fighting, girly, because it's not time for you to cross the River Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> After the interview on the pier in 96, we became very good friends, because then she came here and started working stringing Christmas ornaments. It was just incredible. You know, I, I said to myself, I said, she wants to work at the store. This queen is gonna last three hours a day, you know, two days at the most, please, no, you know, but, oh, I'll give her a shot. You know what I mean? Like, it was just enough where I said, oh, I'll give her, you know, I'll give anybody a try. You know what I mean? And then in my amazement, she turned out to be incredible. They tell me, my computer man just told me a couple weeks ago, I didn't know this at the time, but when I would really be getting on Sylvia's nerves, she'd become humming this tune. Yes, we have no bananas, we have no bananas today. And in 95, about, I was at a thing Clags was doing um, up on 42nd Street at the university there. And uh, they had a, uh, the last panel was this thing on Stonewall. And uh, Silvio was there. And I was like, hi, remember me? I'm one of your kids, you know, that sort of thing. And where you been? I guess I was intrigued by her, you know, when I first saw her. She was had a lot of energy, you know. She was talking about how she'd been homeless and she'd been living on a pier and that sort of thing. And I said, uh, hey, you're not homeless. I got a, a place. As long as I got a place, you're not homeless. Yeah, that sort of thing, you know. So she, um, she didn't move in right away, but she started coming around, you know. Julia had been close with me and Rusty, and uh, she was living here with us at the time. I just started spending a lot of time with her. She asked if she could stay here. The idea was she was going to 
live here. She'd do some work in the backyard, do some work around the house in uh, lieu of paying rent. Maybe this would be more important to me than it would be to her because, uh, after, you know, when we first moved in together, she was like, she made this, she was like decorating, you know, and, uh, you know, that was when, when Pokemon was first starting, so she, she would like Pikachu and so I bought one of these for her. <laughs> The first couple of years were hardest because when she first moved in, I mean, I loved Sylvia to death, but she was a uh, hardcore alcoholic. I mean, she was an unqualified drunk. When she mo when she moved here, she would drink every day. I mean, she would come home from work, sit down in a chair, uh, open her second or third uh, quart of vodka for the day, and uh, that was about it. She spent all her time in the living room downstairs. And uh, she slept down there and watched TV down there. And uh, I just remember, you know, I wanted to do things for her, you know. And she, um, she used to go like this to me when I'd come in, you know. And I'd go back like that to her. And she, um, she used to call me an angel, you know, because I guess of the fact that I was helping her, you know. And, Julia would come in to help Sylvia. So, I mean, I saw this relationship literally take root and grow. And uh, Julia and Sylvia became an item. Chelsea, you know, asked, asked me whether we were lovers. And so I asked her. And she, you know, I mean, they almost became inseparable. And then that got where you never saw one without the other. I was at work and she said, uh, you know, she came up to me and said, well, I've been thinking about it all day, you know, and she said, I've decided we are lovers. But what was so incredible is that Julia did something for Sylvia that no one else in the world ever did. After a while, uh, Julia, uh, Sylvia quit drinking, uh, apparently, you know, the relationship with Julia gave her some impetus uh, for doing that. Julia kept Sylvia sober. No, no one has ever been as enthusiastic about me as she was. I mean, she was like, she would, um, you know, she would caress me like I was a gift. Julia gave Sylvia that extra leg she needed. And then she got, like, incredibly politically active again and uh, started doing some really wonderful work. And, you know, she was more her. She really was ferocious when she got sober. Straight on, you know, <laughs> right. powerful, you know. She was totally responsible. I mean, first time in her life, I was just so proud of her. And I used to tell her constantly, and it used to make her so happy. And she used to say to me, oh, I'm so happy when you tell me you're proud of me. She rose above circumstances. I mean, she getting me on you know, a child process at the age of 10, you know, and, and a drug addict, and all these awful experiences that went on in her life. and. You would have thought that she would have just, as she got older, would have gotten uglier and more mm -hmm. twisted. And instead, somehow, she went through this, this roller coaster ride of tragedy and suddenly bloomed like a, a, a new rose of spring or something. Mm -hmm. I should say an opium poppy. <laughs> I mean, other people can talk about this better than I can. I mean, she got religion at the end of her life. She was very actively involved in the MCC. Um. She came to the church about four years ago and began attending 
on Sunday on a regular basis. She began volunteering in the food pantry, which uh, serves um, people who are living in poverty in the city and also people living with AIDS. And uh, eventually, the director of our food pantry resigned, and we hired Sylvia as the director of the food pantry. had a very deep, uh, deep passion for uh, people living in poverty in this city. Not just the trans community, not just the queer community, but anybody uh, who didn't have the kind of housing or the kind of clothing or the kind of medical care or the kind of resources that it really takes to survive, much less live, in New York City. I can go home and say that I She just had this way about her that people from all walks of life would end up here getting groceries or lunches or some kind of food or clothing or housing assistance from us. And she really um, helped us, I think, develop that ministry and take it the next step. It makes me feel good that we're able to reach a few people, but um, in the long run, it's still not enough, but every little bit helps. The other thing that will always stick with me is when we were really wrestling with Sonda, uh, she came to me one day and asked me if I understood uh, what I was doing in terms of calling for an inclusive Sonda, if I knew what that meant. And I said that I did. It meant that I wouldn't leave her behind. She didn't let people go blindly into the positions that they took. She, she wanted to make sure that you understood what you were saying, what you might be giving up, what you might be sacrificing in order to stand with her. And I really admire that kind of, um, not only forthrightness, but that kind of honesty and integrity. The transgender movement is very marginalized and she had a vision, and she continued to fight for that vision. Even Matt Foreman and Joe Graybars had come to have a meeting with her in the hospital and uh, about the Sonda bill, and Sylvia was you know, so anxious to get that passed before she died. I mean, on your own deathbed, the summons ESPA, the people from the Empire State Agenda Committee, to your deathbed to plead the case, <clears throat> don't leave my people behind, Brilliant strategy. I didn't sit in on the meeting. I went out to get something to eat. But Reverend Pat sat in on the meeting. There were four of us, actually, in her room. Matt and Joe agreed to come to her hospital bedside and meet with her about Sonda. And when I came back up, Sylvia was extremely happy. Whatever they had said uh, satisfied Sylvia. She was able to actually negotiate um, in an amazingly competent uh, way as she lay there in her hospital bed um, and got uh, ESPA to agree to having a trans person on their board of directors and was able to present her list of demands to them.
So coming up next is Pay It No Mind, The Life and Times of Marsha P. Johnson. And you can find this also on YouTube. You're listening to the Weekly Review with Roman. Uh, You can come by the station anytime. We're on the corner of 21st and Florida in the lovely Mission District of San Francisco. So stay tuned. And this starts off with... What's the point of complaining? It don't get you nowhere. I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong. Nobody promised you tomorrow. Marsha P. Johnson. And this is from an interview from June 26th, 1992. was a subculture within a subculture. It didn't bother her. She didn't hide from it. You know, she met it. She, she met it head on. Roy was a young hooker, 18 years old when I met him, and he mentioned Marsha, that he went to the village and hung out with Marsha. And I said, I don't think Marsha's compers you should want to hang out with. Marsha, when I saw her in the flower, just getting crowned holy by people from India. She knows something that I don't know. I met Marsha on Christopher Street, and the first time I saw her, I said, is it this person? I remember seeing Marsha walk down the street in a miniskirt that he had made with nothing on underneath, and it was clearly see-through. Clearly. And she'd be coming up Christopher Street with the roll-down stockings, fuzzy slippers, her wig and beer can rollers. Hello, everyone. 
everybody. What a wonderful morning. Over the top with the jewelry, flowers in her hair, very creative looking, very commanding of attention, not wanting to get it, but just getting it anyway. I always remember knowing Marsha P. Johnson. I must have known her before I was nine or ten, maybe younger. She would hang out with my father a lot in the kitchen. I remember them spending a lot of time talking in the kitchen. And when my father would leave, if he would leave to go do an errand or if he would leave to do something, she would stay with me. So. In some ways, I guess you could say Marsha P. was a babysitter of mine. Uh, Marsh is like a Bodhisattva. Her presence on Sheridan Square or on Christopher Street or wherever she stopped and asked for spirit change or chatted with people. It was a religious, holy experience. And all of us who did drag or partial drag always admired her and thought of her as a, a patron saint. She had this kind of glow about her. She's like an angel. Her spirit shine through her. My father thought that her heart was in the right place, that she was someone to be trusted. I mean, she, she'd always take five bucks, but she would always say, and, and I'm going to give you back 20, Tony. And she meant it. She meant it because she had a generous heart and a generous spirit, but also because she was convinced she was going to get this billionaire boyfriend, and she was going to be living great with him. Marcia was one of those colorful New York characters that you would see bouncing around the piers or the village in plastic and lame and glittery things and hoop earrings. And I always wondered who was that, and she always said hello. And I did a little research at the time, and turned out she wasn't just a kook. She was a serious activist and entertainer. She floored every audience. They just adored her. And I kept wondering, what the hell is it? When I think of Marsha P. Johnson, I think of someone who kids today who are gay know nothing about, which is a shame, really, because she's one of the reasons they are sitting in all their liberated glory today. But uh, Marsha paid the price for who she was.
that spirit that follows me around, you know, and helps me out my hours and eat. And listens to all my problems and never laughs at me. <laughs> he takes me very seriously. I started coming to New York and meeting painted queens. And I didn't meet drag queens. As you would say, drag queens until I can, uh, early 60s. That the world was so different then was gay people were scheduled for non-existence. In other words, we were supposed to have no reality called gay, homosexual, except to be in a mental institution getting shock treatments or getting fired from a job. I knew her from the mid-60s and through the 70s, and Marsha always gave this blessed presence and encouragement to be who you wanted to be. Those who were a little too feminine were found upon, but Marsha and a few others would stand ramrods straight, shoulders back, head high, and present themselves, and that encouraged so many people, or gave happiness to people that said, I wish I had the guts to do that. She would sort of hold court in Sheridan Square and saying, we're in the village, we're free, live. Queens that used to just wear a little bit of makeup and go out to the street and boys clouds and turn days. There was no place as a, a safe haven for a gay kid. The only place, option you had was a bar or to pick up a john to find a place to stay for the night if you were a young, young street kid and it was cold out, or that was it. You really didn't have many options. When I first met Marsha in the early 70s, Marsha was homeless. I know some of the girls would live in various places for short periods of time. They would get a, a hotel room or oh, the baths, she used to stay a lot. And there was a place in Brooklyn, a house in Brooklyn where the girls lived for a while. But none of those things lasted very long. Sometimes I really wondered how she got through it. And then I know she used to sleep in the movies too on 42nd Street. It was 99 cents before noon. So she'd get up there before noon and she would sleep up there if she needed a place to sleep. It was amazing. It really was amazing how he was able to survive and get through through life without having a place to really call home. Marsha had a following around town of like people that, I mean, I, I go to the flower district and, and they have these big tables where they sort like lilies and things. Marsha would be sleeping under them. And I saw this more than once. And I would say to the guy there, why is she here? And, and the guy would just say, oh, she's holy. And, and, and there were all these people that like, had whatever was going on in their head, Marsha became this, this, and then they would, she would stay there and they would give her, Marsha, the leftover flowers, tons and tons of daffodils. Maybe she'd take her last $10 and go out the door and come back 20 minutes later with this big bouquet, $10 worth of flowers. And I'd say, Marsha, what are you doing wasting your last $10 on flowers? And she'd go in my back room and be putting them in her hair and making this incredible arrangement. She'd say, oh, don't worry, Mr. Wicker. She said, these flowers are going make me a lot of money. And they would. She walked around decked in flowers a lot, remember? That's what she gets those to throw oh, in. She always had flowers in her. Yeah. She yeah, put yeah, Christmas yeah. lights in, and the Christmas lights lit up. Roy was a young hooker, 18 years old when I met him. To make a long story short, he ended up staying here. I sort of took him in. He essentially became my adopted son. And one night, he said to me, it was very cold out, about 10 degrees. He said, could Marsha come and sleep here? Because, you know, she didn't mind sleeping on the floor. Marsha likes to sleep on the floor. Which I thought, now, Willie, you never lie. Why did you tell me a fib like that? And so I allowed Marsha to come in that night 
and she was here for the next 12 years. Marsha lived with me here in Hoboken. Now this is a high-rise building. Our apartment always notorious as being the gay apartment because of the strange people that came and went. So I told Marsha, no problem living here, but you can't come and go from this building in drag because I was afraid that would be pushing things too far. So she would wear bulky clothing and get on this path train and then the dress would drop out from underneath the leather jacket. And by the time she hit Christopher Street, she would have transformed herself into a drag queen, except for these huge, clunky male shoes that were about size 12 or something. She wasn't the kind of queen you questioned her drag. Because she had very little. And, you know, she wasn't well-dressed, coordinated kind of drag queen. She put on what was available and what, you know, fulfilled her idea of being a woman to some extent. It was a very, very natural look. And all her own, I mean. It was amazing to me that all these people held Marsh, and these were people from, like, all over the world, that, that, like, I don't know what the concept was going on there. She would go out and stand on the corner, and people knew her, and they'd take pictures with her, or she'd say, could you spare some change for a starving actress? One of the great things about Marsh's friendliness is that there was no agenda to it. I had the feeling that she probably had no idea who I was, just like I didn't know who she was. But she always said hello. She always broke that wall and was friendly the way most New Yorkers aren't. Not because she wanted an item. She was just, on the surface, a really happy-go-lucky person. Could you give me a dollar? Do you have a dollar for a dying drag queen or a starving queen? It was sort of a Robin Hood. She would ask for money from people who were in the street going by and say, for instance, they would give her some money. Uh, two minutes later, she'd turn around and give it to somebody else who needed it. She'd say, here, honey, get yourself something to eat. She would not argue or fight the people who insulted her. Why don't you get off Christopher Street? You're giving us a bad name. She was like the mayor of Christopher Street. And the queens definitely crossed the street or went around the block with their johns. And it wouldn't be good temper, though, because they were too highfalutin. They had the look, but not the spirit. Marsha had the spirit. She just didn't nod or acknowledge you. She turned around and said hello. She was always like that, which gave you a chance even fleetingly to know her. Uh, she was warm. 
So everybody knew Marsha. No one had anything bad to say about Marsha. Marsha was really well liked. Bars and establishments 86er, and she said, if they don't want me in their establishment even to buy a soda or something, I'll go somewhere else. I don't look for trouble. Homophobia in the gay community, you know, she used to say that some of the queens treated their dogs better than they treated her. They would go by and say, what is it? She would say right to them, you know, what do you care what it is? You're not giving it anything. who was the founder of the Gay Liberation Front, arrived at the Stonewall Inn that night. Uh, he was met by his friend John Goodman. And John Goodman told him that the soon after Jackie Harmona started fighting the police, that both Marsha Johnson and Zazu Nova joined in. I've been in gay liberation ever since the first time in 1969. I was in the Stonewall riots. After the riots, Morty Manford and Marty Robinson, both very important figures in the Gay Activist Alliance, both told Robin Souza that Marsha Johnson was involved in starting the riots. The story that Robin Souza then told me was that Marsha Johnson said, I got my civil rights and then threw a shot glass into a mirror and that started the riots. Uh, in GAA, this became known as the shot glass that was heard around the world. In this case, the mythology reflects the facts, and I think that when we weigh all the evidence together, we have to conclude it's extremely likely that she was among the first to physically resist the police. A spark comes along and it's like near gasoline and it goes kabang, and that's what happened that night. And so don't ever think that if there were no Stonewall, that, that it would just be like it is now, because it was a horrible world before that. We were all runaways, and some of them were like 14 years old. Some people had scalding water thrown on them by their parents. People that couldn't go back home no matter what, and couldn't go back to school no matter what. And, and that group of people was the catalyst in the riot. It was the street kids who had nothing to lose that were the force that got it going. History isn't something that you look back at and say, oh, that's inevitable, that would have happened anyway. No, it happens because people make decisions that are sometimes very impulsive and of the moment, but those moments are cumulative realities. Why are you here today? Darling, I want my gay rights now. That's when I started my little writing. I want to get into this fabulous little dress. And it's fabulous little hairdo here. And, and learn how to do makeup and come out. Because I found out that my body was worth the money in those days. I found out if you're a pretty boy or a pretty little transvestite, you can make a couple little dollars. And that's how I learned how to hustle. And then I, I found out the prettier you look as a little boy or the prettier you look as a little boy made up as a girl. 
before it was as fancy as it is now. We all hung out there. We went sunbathing. And I would be sitting there, and suddenly Marsha would come along and grab my shirt. Mm -hmm. and say, she always called me by my two names, Bob Kohler. Never called me Bob, ever. And she said, Bob Kohler, give me... And she's forgotten. I said, Marsha, would you stop? And suddenly Marsha would be naked, stark naked, in broad daylight down at the pier. And I'd say, Marsha... So she my father needs those clothes. And I would be hanging on to my clothes for dear life. And Marsha would be trying to get them off. And she would usually get just like a shirt at the most. And she'd throw it in. And these were sacrifices to her father and to Neptune, who got all mixed up together. Marsha only very rarely talked about her father. She did tell me once when she, she had looked into the river and seen her father at the bottom of the river. She was making offerings of flowers and change to King Neptune as an appeasement to help her friends who are on the other side. Then she would, after she settled all of that and sort of snarled at me for not giving all my clothing, she would go up Christopher Street, where she would be picked up about midway. I mean, somebody would seize Marsha, you know, naked queen walking up the street, and they would call, and they would take her away for about two or three months, and they would put an implant in her spine, of Thorzine, I think it was, and that would calm her down. Then she would come back. She'd be like a zombie for about a month, and then she'd be the old Marsha. I mean, back to Neptune and her father. My first illness my five mental breakdowns we started in 1970, and that was didn't start falling downhill, and it's been falling up and downhill ever since. Honey, I walked right down and you all walked off. And walked in. He took some photos and then he made a group of soap screens and it's called Ladies and Gentlemen. And he had me as a, a blonde with ponytail called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Well, Andy Warhol was the arbiter of what was fabulous, let's face it. When he walked into a room, you knew it was a room worth being in. And he would handpick, by his visual sense, who was worth capturing, whether in a painting or a Polaroid. For him to do a Polaroid of Marsha makes her legendary. It means she caught the eye of Andy Warhol. She was worth capturing. She was like this transgender version of a Campbell's soup can, but much prettier. I was no one, nobody from Nowheresville until I became a drag queen. That's what made me in New York. That's what made me in New Jersey. That's what made me in the world. We went on Christopher Street. They had a silk screen of Marsha, and they threw us out of the store. They called her Riff Raff. Really? She got, we went to look at her silk screen. She was so proud of it, and we got thrown out of the store. When I became a drag queen, I started to live my life as a woman. Marsha's success in life wasn't something that suddenly happened because Andy Warhol did a portrait of her. Andy Warhol did a portrait of her after she literally had become a larger-than-life legend by having converted so many people into fans and friends to going out. She'd always say little things to people like, have a nice day. 
it seemed to me, I thought, well, you know, to those, but it's funny, those things must matter because she had a special way of making a little extra effort to be extra polite, nice to people. And that really made people love Marsha. The people get lost in the telling of the story. They want the bigger picture of what's going to be there. That there was a riot and this is what happened. That there were drag queens. They don't really get into the individual people who were more than the Stonewall riot. I mean, these were people that were bigger than life that walked the streets here. And Marsha is, is like in the class of what? saint of gay life. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, if you ever hear of this old Russian tradition that was called uh, Fools for God. Friends and many people who knew Marsha called her Saint Marsha because she was so generous and she was such a good person. A little queen would come up and say, Marsha, that brooch is so beautiful. And Marsha would say, oh, you like it? Take it right off and give it to her. She was simple, pure, she had her bad days, and she let you know it. She had so many breakdowns, and the gay community recognized she was a saint. That's never been done in their lifetime. It's so practical, too, you know. Marsha was totally mad, but one of the most greatest geni geniuses on the face of the earth. She was outrageous in a different manner, and she was noticed first for that. But uh, talks then started about her activism. It made her very different. It made people think twice about her and made people want to stop to talk to her and made people listen. I've been in gay liberation ever since the first time in 60s and the 70s, and a group of, I guess they were all transvestites, called themselves STAR, S-T-A-R, Street Transvestite Activist Revolutionary, which made a lot of sense, and I thought it was kind of hilarious, because they were all stars anyway. Sylvia Lee Rivera deserves all the credit for STAR, Street Transvestite Revolutionary, because she was one of the people that was in the One big thing in Marsha's life, and also in Sylvia's life, was that they had formed a group called STAR, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. And they had managed to get some small-time mobster who ran a porno store to give them uh, an apartment or something in the Lower East Side in this slum building, which for a few months they operated as a shelter for homeless transgender youth. And they felt that that was one of their great accomplishments in life. And actually, that has ended up going into the history book because it was really the first time anyone had ever tried to make an outreach to the homeless transgender community, especially youth that are kicked out of their home for being transgender. She was talking about nobody to represent her in her rights as a transvestite because they had all these gay men and all these gay women 
working at Space Center, but didn't have any transvestites. She wanted to have her own group, and I think that was wonderful. And I hope someday she just gets her credit. I hope somebody writes a nice story about her someday. Well, Marsha, how are you, darling? How are you doing this day Pride Week? He always saw talent underneath you, and he liked flamboyant people, and and then he could bring it out. He could bring the talent out, and I thought he brought a lot of it out in Marsha. Marsha was a very big performer. I mean, really very large on stage, and that doesn't ever come across on, on video. When I say she was big, the generosity of her spirit was always right there in front of the audience, and they adored her. It was not censored. It was not figured out. It was just there. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Marsha B. Maybe 50 seconds. 
so, and she read it, the whole thing, you know. And she went out every night. It was a simple song, and she obliterated this song. I mean, it was a d d disaster. But they loved it. They went berserk. So one day I said to her, Marsha, this is a very short song. Let me go over it with you so and show you how to sing it properly. And, you know, this way you go out there, and it'll be really nice. So she said, okay. So I go up the song with her, and she gets it perfectly. She goes out that night. She sings it perfectly. Big round of applause. She comes off. I said, Marsha, that was great. Next night, she goes out on the stage. She ruins the number, just destroyed it. They go berserk. She came off stage. I said, Marsha, what happened? She said, they like it better that way. <laughs> and, and, and they did. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in case you didn't get the message, but I know you did, because I can see that this audience is the message. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Someone to sum it up for you, Miss Marsha. Enjoy. Oh. So I was fascinated by the story. Then when I saw her, you know, she was fine. 
She never answered that. She just went, oh, that. You know, when I tried to bring up the story. I mean, how many people you bring guns and pull a gun down on me because they didn't think I was, you know, I would tell them I was a boy and I was in drag. And I would, I would tell them that I would go like hustling and would they want to go out? And they said, yes, I want to go out. And then when they get up in the hotel and I take off my all my clothes and say, I can't believe it, you're a boy. I said, I know this man couldn't sleep. I was a real woman, honey. I'm just a transvestite. And then I look in the mirror and I say, maybe he could have thought I was. I don't know. I wouldn't be for sure. Because I'd be telling me I'm going to be painted. Maybe it's because of my voice. I don't know. Marsha would frequently disappear for four, five, six, seven days at a time. And I'd say to Willie, where is Marsha? And he'd say, she must be in jail. And sure enough, about 10 days later, she would walk in because she had gotten a 30-day sentence. They always let her out after 10 days, even though she had 30. I'm telling you, every time they pick you up, they pick you up for something like laudering, uh, with intent to prostitute or something like that most of the time. Because a smart prostitute never goes out in the car and names a price. They always treat me like I'm the world's murderer. The highest murderer in the world. As though I was arrested. I mean, they think I'm out here to murder people instead of have sex with them for money. There's a P in my name also. They call me Marsha Page, no more Jessica. I'm trying to pay a lot of those things that happened to me in life. Absolutely no mind. It was Marsha P. Johnson, and the P stood for pay it no mind, uh, which, Marsha, which Marsha once told the judge. I went down to bail her out of court, and Marsha was in the docket, and she came up, and Bruce Rice looked at it, and he said, uh, Marsha P. Johnson, and she said, uh, she had a very flat voice, we used to call her field voice, and she said, yes, and uh, she said, what does the P stand for? And she had the nerve to snap Judge Wright. She said, pay it no mind. <laughs> he said, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. He said, get out of here. Pay no mind, Johnson. Marsha, pay no mind, Johnson. Well, I briefly saw her at the name Marsha P. Johnson is a drag queen name because I used to go down to 42nd Street and everybody used to call me Michelle. And I was a little boy and I didn't think that was a nice name for a boy. That's why I got the name Johnson from Howard Johnson's Restaurant. And I'm every year in Stonewall Car lately. There was a time when they didn't even want me in Stonewall Car. Harry Pride, who runs the Gay March and the Gay Festival, tried to ban transvestites from the parade in like 1978. And yes, there are fellow gay men who had cast uh, an evil eye at you and said, oh, 
they're giving us a bad name. Because after all, I mean, all you turn on TV, there was a gay pride parade and all they showed were the drag queens. So what Sylvie and Marcia did is they went ahead of the opening banner and as two transvestites, I guess with some friends, they marched in front of the parade that so made them end up leading the whole parade. So the, the, the committee decided, well, we've got to include transvestites in our parade. Eddie Murphy was the one that put me in this dumb little car in 1980. He took me from the back of the parade and put me up front. But he yet evidently watched me through the years since 1969 and evidently thought that I had a right to be in that contingent of, of the parade and put me there. I never wanted to be there. I didn't care where I marched in that gay liberation parade ever since the first started because I didn't think that was important. Well, Marsha was born for a parade. I mean, look at her. You know, so it was only natural she would go to the gay pride parade. Uh, she was somebody who put her life on the line. Uh, people think uh, oh, the gay community just happened this way. It didn't. There were people like Marsha literally in the street, not just celebrating, but fighting for rights. I think the important thing was that we got our gay rights all across America and across the world, and got the right to be human beings just like other human beings. I wanted to see gays at least have a thought in life because they've never really had anything called a parade that was their own. You know, they always had to hide in the closet of somebody else. Marsha lived here, and Marsha literally became the uh, nurse for David. I had to go to work, and she was here all the time, and she would change the linens and, and come in once he fell off the couch, and she swept him up in his arms. I had to sit in a room with him when he died, and that was very scary to me. And I had a breakdown, because I never had to sit in a room with anybody when it was like guys before. I thought that it would be screaming and calling and everything when you didn't do any other things. She was very, very religious, and a neighbor came in and told me that at 6 in the morning they had gone to the Catholic Church across the street, and Marcia was prostrate on the floor in front of the statue of the Virgin Mary.
and I would find her in the strangest churches, and she'd be dressed in velvet, and she'd be throwing glitter, and she never would face the altar when she was praying. She lay prostrate facing the door because she thought, you don't look at the altar. Marsha would always say she went to the Greek church, she went to the Catholic church, she went to the Baptist church, she went to the Jewish temple. She said she was covering all angles. She would take her last $2. Willie once said to me, we only had $2 and we bought a box of cookies. And you know, by the time we walked down to the river, Marge had given away all the cookies that we had spent our last $2 on. The reason for that is because Marsha had been hungry, had lived on the streets, and she knew that a chocolate chip cookie to a starving queen was a great gift. I mean, every once in a while, I reach my hand out when I have extra dollars and I help somebody. I'm not going to have anything when I die because I don't have any clothes. Oh, Jesus, with the loaf of bread and the fish, Marcia always had something to share. Not only her goodwill and thoughts, a bag of potato chips, she would just hand to the group of kids. I got this dress. I'm just like Cinderella again. I have this one little tired dress. I thought to take all the 